<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, good friends. Welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. Our chance to look back at the big news of the week with three of our top political reporters. And like it or not, on the news front, it's still mainly all Trump all the time. The former president dominating the news again this week, even if not necessarily in the best way. Indicted by a Miami grand jury on 37 counts of mishandling presidential documents and forced to appear in a Miami courtroom where he pleaded not guilty while still maintaining his position as by far the frontrunner in the 2024 GOP presidential primary, which leaves his Republican primary opponents in a pickle. Do they defend him or try to distance themselves from him without pissing off all of his supporters? In the middle of which, still one more Republican and the third Floridian, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez jumped into an already crowded field. Meanwhile, Joe Biden declines to comment. He had a root canal this week instead. Uh, And here today, to put it all in perspective for us, Eliza Collins, politics reporter for The Wall Street Journal, covering Arizona and all the West. Hi, Eliza. Hi, Bill. Good to have you back. Sarah Weyer joining us from the L.A. Times, National Security Justice Department, and Washington accountability reporter. Hello, Sarah. Hi, how are you doing? Great, thank you. And coming back, our good friend Jason Dick, editor-in-chief of the CQ Roll Call, our man in Washington. Hello, Jason. Uh, Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Sarah and Eliza. Yeah, right. So, um, you know, let's start with all the politics of the Trump indictment and all the legal implications, but just the just the substance of it all. Jason, whatever you think about it, this indictment of Donald Trump, federal charges, first time former president, is one for the history books, right? Oh, absolutely. And I, I think that it's, we've gotten so accustomed to Trump um, kind of dominating the headlines and as, as you alluded to in your, in your opening and 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 being ever present in our politics, we had this brief respite for I think it felt like uh, forever, but it was I think it was about three weeks last year uh, when he wasn't <laughs> at the top of mind in politics. Um, but this is a big deal. This is not a civil suit, uh, which he has weathered uh, many of those over the decades. Um, th- these are criminal charges, and they're very. It seems like they are very uh, straightforward. There's nothing that requires a sort of a new novel understanding of a case such as what happened in New York uh, or what is unfolding in New York. And it's not something where somebody is is, you know, charging his business. These are these are him. This is him and his uh, his body man uh, in Mar-a-Lago, you know, hiding classified documents, some of them about nuclear secrets. Uh, from the archives, their their rightful owners, the American people, and then concealing it, seeking to conceal it. It's a big. It is a big deal. And Eliza, as Jason indicated, what struck me reading the indictment 
is the details about Trump's personal involvement in this, right? I mean, moving the boxes, ordering the boxes, rifling through the boxes, showing off documents. I mean, telling people, you know, we'd be better off not giving them back. I mean, Trump's all over this thing. Right. I mean, I think you cannot charge a former president without very clear detail. This case is already ripping the country apart. I mean, we are seeing just this political divide grow deeper and deeper. And so the prosecutors here are trying to do everything they can to make this case, as you guys mentioned earlier, straightforward, clear. Just you can't charge a former president on something loose. And so I think that's why we're seeing all these details. We're seeing the photos of the boxes Mm -hmm. in the bathroom, in the ballroom. I mean, it is laying out for everyone to see. He had these documents and then he tried to keep them even when the government was trying to get them back. So, Sarah, tell us about the, the, the national security implications of these documents. I mean, reportedly, even... Uh, a rough plan, a Pentagon's plan on how to evade Iran. I mean, this is serious shit, right? I mean, th- we know that some of these documents were among some of the country's top secrets. You had nuclear records for our country and other countries. You had uh, plans for you know how the U.S. would retaliate if they were attacked by a foreign military. Mm-hmm. I mean. Some of these were really, really serious secrets that, you know, there's only a handful of people in the country whose eyes are allowed to lay on these. And, you know, we haven't heard much from other countries about this so far, but you have to imagine that they're going to question that whether it's safe to give America their secrets in the future. Well, what would happen to uh, if a member of the military uh, took these documents home and showed them around, you know, at the back backyard barbecue. You know, we, we actually have plenty of examples of this just in the last few years. Um, you know, espionage is the charge that, uh, you know, the former president is being brought up on, but that doesn't mean that he was a spy or even that he shared the information. Uh, the Espionage Act includes just willfully retaining them. And uh, there have been several cases of low-level military officials sharing much less classified secrets and spending a lot of time in jail and prison. And uh, I think if there wasn't the political side of this and the the unprecedented nature of a former president being charged with a federal crime for the first time in U.S. history, um, I think, you know, and any other person would already be in prison. Right. So um, clearly this indictment uh, and his arraignment in the courtroom uh, did not cause Donald Trump to lose uh, any step at all in his 2024 campaign. He flew up to Bedminster, New Jersey, and here he is um, basically relaunching his campaign with a whole new emphasis. I will appoint a real special prosecutor to go after the most corrupt president in the history of the United States of America, Joe Biden. And the entire Biden crime family, they want to silence me because I will never let them silence you. And I am the only one that can save this nation because you know they're not coming after me, they're coming after you, and I just happen to be standing in their way, and I will never be moving. Uh, So, Jason, we have to point out there are, in fact, already two special prosecutors looking into 
Biden alleged alleged Biden um, difficulties or what or crimes, whatever you want to call it. One for Joe Biden, one for Hunter Biden, both appointed by Donald Trump. <laughs> yes, but but these aren't very special prosecutors. Oh, oh I see. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, this. So there's the there's the reality of of this indictment that we've you know just discussed in the 37 counts of you know and some of them related to espionage and and sealing nuclear secrets and then you know you move from that into Trump's political you know campaign and this is what he has always sought to do he has always sought to reframe it to his advantage some things that we perceive as would be a liability uh, such as being charged with crimes, uh, you know, he sees as an opportunity to fire up the troops and to raise money. And this is what he has done. Um, what I find kind of fascinating about it, though, is that there, I mean, th- this is partially from reports sort of in the room, and I will say right, right off the bat, I was not there. Uh, but several several people who were at Bedminster, you know, who were reporting on it or talking to people said that it was, there's this, there's this sense that, um, you know, Trump is saying some of the same things, you know, it's it's not me they're coming after, it's you, uh, you know, this is the most corrupt, you know, president in history. We, we hear these tropes all over again, but he's maybe losing a little bit of the step there that there's less, a little bit less spark, maybe just because of the simple weight of these things. That doesn't mean that he's going to lose support among his most hardcore, you know, supporters. Uh, in, but it does seem that there there is a cost, there's an opportunity cost at the least. Uh, and even if he loses some casual, um, you know, supporters, it may that may be the difference in elections that are close. And it seems like all of our elections are close now at the presidential level. So, Eliza, there were reports this week that one of the president's attorneys, uh, former president's attorneys, had said, you know, but the best thing we can do is let's just talk to DOJ and settle this whole thing, right? And that Trump said, no, 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 he wanted to fight it. So. In a sense, is this exactly what Trump is? Is Trump did Trump get exactly what he wanted? Right, being charged by the federal government and then having to fight them and making that his whole campaign. I mean, I don't know what Trump is actually thinking. Whether he wants to (laughs) be to be indicted, but. Trump's campaign from the beginning has been a fight. It is grievances. It's exactly what you guys were talking about. You know, look what they're doing to me, but I am a representative for you all. And so there's no doubt that Trump feels strongest when he is fighting, when I'm out there talking to Republican voters. There is this very strong sense that, you know, the government is out to get Trump. Now, to Jason's point, that is his supporters. I don't know how that translates if he is the Republican nominee in a general election. We have seen Republicans and independent voters turn away from Trump because of the constant drama and the fighting. And so what rallies his base might be enough to turn off voters in a general election. And the question is those voters, he lost the 2020 election. Does it, does this all convince those voters to come back in 24 if he's the nominee? And so Trump might think that this is, he raised $7 million this week with his supporters. It's Mm -hmm. certainly not a problem with the diehards, but that's not how you win elections. Right. So, so Sarah, we know this is not the beginning and not the end either, right? He's, he was already indicted once and now he's indicted again. 
it looks like Georgia is is about that other shoe is about to drop, and then Gene Carroll is coming back for another five million, and then you've got the January sixth DOJ investigation. Um, does it look like if all of that lands lands right, and Trump survive as a candidate? I think I would go back to what Eliza just said, that, you know, the question is going to become for middle of the road voters who aren't, you know, Trump diehards, whether they want this much baggage. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing specifically denying him the ability to serve as president from prison. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, th- I think that's going to actually weigh on people's minds as they walk into the ballot box. I mean, you know, how many states even allow a felon to be the political nominee? I know in Georgia, they don't. Um, so people are going to have to think about that a little bit. And these these cases are paced out over the next year. You yeah. know, uh, we might see a Georgia indictment in July or August. Uh, you know, the, one of the New York cases starts in October. And then we've got Jean Carroll in January. We've got the other New York attorney general uh, or the other New York case in March. March, right. And who knows what uh, Jack Smith is going to bring down about January 6th and whether the, these are the only indictments we see about the documents case. Right. <laughs> and we remember that uh, James Comey said that Trump might even end up accepting the nomination at the convention wearing an DOJ ankle bracelet, right? I mean, that <laughs> uh, could happen, I guess, could happen. So I'm, I find it uh, curious and, in fact, uh, amusing watching the other Republican candidates try to figure out <laughs> how, to, how to deal with this. Uh, they're going in all kinds of different directions, um, twisting themselves like a, like a pretzel, uh, trying to maybe not get too close to Trump, but maybe not too far away either. For example, here's Nikki Haley giving Jason, giving it her best. If the claims in the indictment are true, then Trump was incredibly reckless with our national security, and that's not okay. You know, when you look at a pardon, the issue is less about guilt and more about what's good for the country. And I think it would be terrible for the country to have a former president in prison for years because of a documents case. I would be inclined in favor of a pardon. Yeah. So what he did was wrong, but I'll pardon him anyway. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's, I, I recently, <laughs> earlier this year, I, I read Washington Journal by Elizabeth Drew, um, you know, about, about the Watergate crisis roughly from August, uh, you know, the, the kind of, of uh, 1973 through 1974 and, and his resignation and how much, you know, how close Nixon was to at some point being pro- probably indicted and how, his resignation sort of short circuited one part of that accountability. Um, and then his pardon by Gerald Ford really cut off the criminal part of it and how we may not have actually been served well at, with that, with that. I mean, because Ford said, we need to move on. We need to heal the wounds and blah, 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 blah. Uh, all that enabled the country to do is sort of put it out of mind, which I think everybody was ready to put it out of mind at that point. And to be honest, there's probably a big chunk of the, of the citizenry who's ready to put this behind them too. But it really is, you know, it, it doesn't serve people well to not have a reckoning. And I think that the pardon talk, you know, uh, you know, and Haley is a great example of that, but they're all, you know, having to dance around this issue. 
um, of whether they would pardon Trump. Um, it, it, it's a nice way of saying like, well, elect me president and I'll pardon your favorite guy. Right. I mean, because what do they have to lose? They're pulling at three percent. Um, so it, it just seems like they, they this is more to curry favor <laughs> than anything else with with the, you know, D- Trump's diehard supporters. That's probably not going to work. Um, but it also to me, it's a disservice because it it halts the accountability process for what's happening in the justice system. And, it, you know, I don't I don't think it served us well with Watergate, you know, in my humble opinion from five decades <laughs> removed, <laughs> uh, and being a child at the time um, had no awareness of it. But I just feel like this process should play out and you know, the, it's, it's funny. It is funny to see like the law and order party, you know, talk about like, uh, you know, basically short circuiting the justice system and the criminal prosecution system. Uh, so again, all the candidates are trying to figure, okay, you know, how can I thread this needle sort of basically, right? Um, uh, uh, maybe not give him, uh, um, a total carte blanche, but also, you know, uh, indicate that what he did wasn't, 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 kosher uh to hear so don uh, eliza ron DeSantis decides his approach is he's gonna go after trump because trump's not conservative enough trump appointed three justices to the supreme court who weren't as conservative as clarence thomas here's ron DeSantis on the uh, hugh hewitt radio program well actually i would say we'll do better than that i mean i i respect the three appointees he did but not none of those three uh, are at the same level of Justices Thomas and Justice Alito. Uh, I think they are the gold standard, uh, and so my justices will be along the lines of a Sam Alito uh, and a Clarence Thomas. Eliza, is this a general election strategy on DeSantis's part? <laughs> you know, it does not seem to be, but you got to make it through a primary first. And I think this is just such a good example of how his Repu- Trump's Republican opponents do not know how to take him on. I mean, he is still leading in the polls by wide margins. DeSantis is his closest competitor, but he's still, you know, 20 plus points behind him in most polls. And it kind of goes back to how how they're talking about the indictment. They're twisting themselves into knots to try to contrast with him without insulting the very voters that they need to convince who also love Trump. I mean, it is it's, they're finding these interesting arguments. Of course, the Trump team immediately sends out clips of DeSantis praising those justices when they were nominated. Yeah. It's a really interesting strategy, but it also just goes to show it's really hard to take on someone who is very popular with voters without going directly at them, which could alienate those voters. So we're seeing yeah. almost all of the candidates do it. Chris Christie and Mike Pence have kind of come out as the two. trying to take on Trump directly. And let's point out, they're both polling in single digits. So I don't uh, know what you do. (laughs) Neither do they, obviously. So, Sarah, that that, that tees up. Why not just stop trying to dance around it and just take him on? Here's the only guy who's really been willing to do so, so far. Uh, Chris Christie had his town hall which went a little better than the Trump down hall on CNN this week. When did, it, when did we get to the point where we're always blaming our adversaries for the weakness of our candidates? Oh, it's the Democrats' fault. It's DOJ's fault. It's this person's fault. It's the media's fault. How bad it's his? He hasn't won a damn thing since 2016. Three-time loser. Loser, loser, loser. 
Well, Sarah, is that the approach? <laughs> I don't know if anyone knows how to push Trump's buttons quite like Chris Christie. <laughs> I mean, just that clip has to be playing on repeat in his head. Loser, loser, loser. Um, you know, there, there's been one or two others who have, have spoken out against me. Asa Hutchinson out of yeah. Arkansas, who I think is also pulling in the single digits, uh, you know, called on Trump to suspend his campaign and said there's no way he could support him if he's the nominee. You're seeing some of that step back from the party line, but it's not by anyone major. It's not by anyone really vocal. Um, you know, they still have, if they want to win the nomination, they still have to win that, you know, 20, 30% of the base that will vote for Trump, even if he shoots someone in the middle of the day on Fifth Avenue. And, and it looks like so far they're they're willing to. Well, what about you, um, uh, Jason? Uh, Sarah mentions uh, Asa Hutchinson. The um, Republican National Committee saying if you want to be on stage in the debate, you have to agree ahead of time that you will support the nominee. Um, Asa Hutchinson says I'm not going to support a convicted felon or a yeah, right. Um, and I don't think Donald Trump is is that either. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like this was a way of, of sort of trying to get everybody on the same page. But as as usual, I mean, the, the, the people are beginning to turn that page. And, and as you said, like Trump himself, I mean, he, you know, he, he has this wonderful way of phrasing things that sort of leaves him some wiggle room. Right. And the, and the last time he he did not take that pledge. Remember, on the stage, yep. he was the only one who did not raise his hand. Yeah, yeah, no, he is. I mean, so it, I, I think that, you know, if, if Aza Hutchinson was polling at 25, 30%, uh, and, and, and still, you know, said that he wouldn't, you know, support the, the nominee, then I think the RNC and, and the debates, you know, folks would, would have trouble, you know, uh, you know, keeping him off the stage. Since he's polling at, you know, single digits, uh, it, it's, it's an easy thing to say like, well, we're, you know, we can, this is how we're going to limit the number of, of people on, on the, on the stage. So we don't end up with these, you know, sort of this clown car situation that we've seen in the past where you have like 20 people up on stage. Meanwhile, uh, I've got to ask all of you about this. Um, there has been some criticism, even from some Democrats, uh, that Joe Biden has, um, by standing, staying on the sidelines and refusing to comment, uh, that that's not necessarily the right strategy. They want the White House to come out and Biden to come out and dump all over Trump on this. Uh, what do you think, Eliza? Is Biden making the right move, or is he uh, just staying too too far back in the in in the background? Well, why get involved when you can let the Republicans sort of twist themselves into knots? You can let the law enforcement and the you know, the counts speak for themselves. I'm not sure quite what the strategy would be for Biden to insert himself other than to force people further into their bases. Yes, it might excite Democrats, especially Democrats who have a lot of concern right now. They're not very excited about Biden as their 2024 candidate. It might give them a rallying cry, but it will also likely consolidate Republicans who say this is political. The Democrats are trying to argue that this is not a political prosecution, but it is based on the facts. So inserting themselves probably would undercut that argument. Uh, it seems it would certainly give uh, Kevin McCarthy and others and Donald Trump uh, more ammunition to say, look, right, we told you this is a whole Democratic plot, right? Uh, and so um, personally, I think Biden's smart to uh, 
uh, keep his counsel and let the Republicans <laughs> fall all over themselves. Um, I do want to ask you, Sarah, uh, speaking of Biden, uh, the Republicans are really trying to turn this and make it an issue about Joe Biden. Uh, James Comer, uh, with his uh, House committee hearings, always promising they're going to they have all this damaging evidence about uh, the Biden crime family, as Donald Trump calls it. Here is a Steve Scalise speaking to reporters at the congressional baseball game this week, saying, uh, you know, it's not Donald Trump, it's Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. Steve Scalise, here he is. If his name was Donald Smith, would this be happening? And I think most people recognize, no, there's a different level of treatment because a lot of people have just said they want to just target Donald Trump. You know, Joe Biden, we've got so much coming out on the the Biden family, millions of dollars going through shell corporations. Jamie Comer's committee has been exposing a lot of that. You don't hear anything out of those agencies. Uh, You look at Hillary Clinton's server, other people that have handled classified documents. Uh, so a classic case may be, Sarah, of what aboutism, but where's the evidence? We've heard that all this stuff is coming out for a long time. Uh, have you seen anything? No, and I'm, I'm waiting for it just as much as anyone else. Um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, if, if there's something there, I want to know. I want to see it yeah. and, and report on it. But they haven't been able to back up any of these claims with factual evidence that the public can see. We saw that just this week with, uh, you know, Senator Grassley going on the Senate floor yeah. saying that mm-hmm. he had audio tapes of a, you know, that included Joe Biden speaking on them that you know detailed a, a horrendous crime, um, and then they had to walk it back over the next couple of days, saying, "Oh, we don't actually have the the uh, recordings. Oh, no one's actually seen the person who made this statement to the FBI that he had recordings in like three years." Um, you know, you can't you can't make these kind of massive claims and expect the country to take them seriously if you don't have anything to back them up. And I think that's why. You know, for example, the first impeachment, you know, Democrats had multiple people who came and testified in public of exactly what they saw and they knew. And Republicans just haven't been able to match that so far that any of us have seen. Um, I, the, the Hillary Clinton comparison makes me smile just a little bit because... <laughs> And that's kind of in a schadenfreude kind of way. But, you know, the the reason she's the reason that this is now a felony and not a misdemeanor. And, you know, Trump is being uh, charged under a, a law he signed to make right. taking these documents home, not a misdemeanor, but a felony. Um, so, you know, the comparison mm-hmm. just kind of makes me smile a little bit in the back of my head each time. Uh. Uh, again, and the fact that the, the Hillary Clinton was investigated by the Trump Justice Department, which found uh, that she was been reckless, but no crime committed. To your point, Sarah, of James Comer on with Sean Hannity, basically admitting, oh, yeah, the tapes are there, but yet they're not there. With respect to the tapes, look, it mentioned in the FBI form that the oligarch had uh, 17 tapes of Biden, two with Joe Biden, except in the bribe. Have you, you had, have the you tape had any that contact you with him? Unfortunately, nobody's had any contact with him for the last three years. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, Sarah, that's your point, right? Yeah, and he even says it with a little bit of a smile in his voice. Like yeah. he, he realizes that he's kind of been called out. Um, Why Sean Hannity? <laughs> 
Yeah, right. <laughs> not, not exactly on MSNBC there, right? <laughs> All right. Uh, enough said. There's a lot of other stuff going on. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, how's he doing with his speakership? Who's in? Who's really controlling the House? And what about the threat of no labels, which has a lot of Democrats and some Republicans worried as well? Uh, let's jump into that after a quick break here on the uh, Bill Prescott in today's roundtable with uh, Jason Dick, Sarah Weyer, and Eliza Collins. A quick break, and we'll be right back. And today's podcast, today's Reporters Roundtable, brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. The Teamsters Union, the largest and the most diverse of all of America's labor unions. Uh, they represent everybody in the American workforce, as they say, everybody from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers and everything in between, uh, under the leadership of their new president, Sean O'Brien. Check out their website at teamster.org for the great work of the Teamsters Union. And we thank them for their good work uh, for all of us and for their support, longtime support, of the Bill Press Pod. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? <laughs> Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back with today's roundtable uh, here on the Bill Press Pod. Eliza Collins joining us from the Wall Street Journal, politics reporter. Sarah Wire from the Los Angeles Times, National Security Justice Department, and Washington accountability reporter. And from CQ Roll Call Editor-in-Chief, Jason Dick. So no labels, this uh, group that says America needs a third choice, and they are in the process of... Uh, trying to get on the ballot in all 50 states with a moderate candidate in between what they say are the extreme left Joe Biden and the extreme right Donald Trump or whomever. Um, Eliza, where is this going? Is it real? And is it a real threat? And, and you know, what's your take on it? Well, it's 
really confusing. Um, basically, they've got a lot of money. There is absolutely an appetite with donors for sort of a more centrist candidate, especially given polling showing most voters do not want a Donald Trump, Joe Biden rematch. The question is who that candidate is, what can they actually win? I mean, there are a lot of questions around that, but basically this group right now is focused on trying to get on the ballot in all of the states. And they say, then if it is a Biden-Trump rematch and they wouldn't be a spoiler for and give the election to Trump, then they would try to field a candidate. Now they say they haven't even had conversations with a candidate, but they're trying to, they say, sort of a backup plan. I have no idea what's happening with this. Right now, they're on just a handful of states, including Arizona. In Arizona, the Democratic Party is suing the Democratic Secretary of State and no labels to get them off the ballot. But um, they haven't even gotten on ballots in other states. So right now we're kind of just watching what's happening. But it's confusing because they're saying they would only put someone forward if they have a real chance to win. It's really hard to win as a third party candidate. And especially if you're looking for sort of those moderate center voters who have been turned off by Trump and might plug their nose and vote for Biden. If you offer them an alternative, there's a real chance you give it to Donald Trump. Jason, isn't it pretty clear that uh, whatever happens, if they're on the ballot in enough states, they will hurt Joe Biden more than they would hurt Donald Trump? I, I don't think there's any question. And, you know, whenever we've had a more viable third candidate in these uh, in these contests, whether it's 1968 or 1992, you know, it, it the 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 loser, uh, the, the the real loser in it tends to be the person who is more closely, you know, sort of identified uh, with, you know, the, kind of the front runner. I mean, George George Bush was was truly hurt by Ross Perot, a more Republican but yeah. independent candidate in 1992, uh, and that enabled Bill Clinton to win with 43 percent of the vote. George Wallace, you know, uh, a, a breakaway sort of uh, Democrat in 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 68, you know, really hurt Humphrey uh, and and en- enabled Nixon to win the White House by, you know, peeling away enough of the Democratic coalition in, in the South. So I it just seems that to Eliza's point, there is no candidate. So it's hard to say, you know, what, you know, what that would look like. I mean, you know, every once in a while we hear somebody like, oh, well, Joe Manchin's interested. And it just seems like there, this is, as she said, nebulous at, at this point. But again, all the, these elections, they're, they're decided by, you know, a couple thousand people in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin um, and in Arizona and Georgia. And if, if just a few people shift one way or another, that makes all the difference in the uh, in the election. And particularly if these are never never Trump people voting for a more moderate, then, you know, that's that would truly probably hurt Biden more, more likely than Trump. Yeah, Sarah, uh, I'd love to get your take on this, too. I was struck this week, uh, particularly struck um, by an op-ed in The New York Times by uh, um, David Brooks, who was one of the people who encouraged no labels in the beginning years ago to get started. You know, we we should have uh, a third choice. And he came out and just said, well, I was for it then, but today it is just too dangerous. There's too much at stake and uh, they ought to just go away. Uh, we also found out this week that a group of Democratic strategists sat down with some of the never-Trumpers, uh, like Bill Kristol uh, and, and others who are involved in the bulwark, uh, to talk about how they could 
uh, knock the legs out from under no labels. So where do you see this going or do you see it going at all? I mean, the big question is how many states they can get on the ballot in. Right? Yeah, I mean, good point. Uh, right. You know, if they get on the ballot in Nebraska and Idaho, it's a lot less impactful than if they get on the ballot in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, Georgia, um, North Carolina. The, uh, But, I mean, Jason was exactly right. The, the possibility of uh, being a spoiler is that much higher. And this is going to be a really different election, I think, than any we've seen. I, I keep waiting for precedented times. I, I hear that those happen. Um, <laughs> has not happened so far in my career, but, uh, um, you know, th- this is going to be different. And, you know, I, I think there, there's a viability to the idea of a third party. Um, I don't know, you know, how much luck they're going to actually have getting on the ballot, especially if people start throwing money against them. Yeah. Well, we do we do remember the history of John Anderson and George Wallace and Ross Perot, and um, and there's never been a third. It's 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 tough to get on the ballot in all fifty states, right? That's a hurdle that so far nobody else has been able to uh, to accomplish. So far as I know, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, Jason, I want to give you the last word here, only because you are again our Washington guy. Uh, tell us about the Republican House and Kevin McCarthy. I mean, last week pretty embarrassing. He had to basically um, shut down the House because his extreme Freedom Caucus members um, were not happy with the deal he made with Biden over the debt ceiling. So is this a case of the tail wagging the dog or who's in charge? Uh, I do think that it is a, t- a case of the tail wagging the dog. Uh, the, as, as you mentioned, the you know, the Freedom Caucus and, and not everybody in the Freedom Caucus, but um, you know, folks like Matt Gates and and uh, and Chip Roy and so forth were were super pissed <laughs> about the debt deal uh, that they they felt like that was not in their interests, and so they flexed their muscles by voting against a rule, not even legislation, but a rule to bring legislation to the floor. And this was, you know, for Democrats, they were just sort of like looking back in glee because it was legislation that they weren't going to support anyway. Uh, a series of bills, you know, the, right. the, to saving gas stoves and reining in federal power and so forth that they weren't going to vote for and wasn't going to go anywhere in the Senate and certainly wouldn't be signed by the president. So they're just watching this with glee uh, as, as McCarthy you know, tries to figure out what the winning combination of getting them back on board is. Uh, it turns out that, uh, it again, we, we were not privy to any sort of agreement, even though uh, some of the, the hard right folks came out and said, well, we have got an agreement you know, that reaffirms our agreement with McCarthy to get the speakership in January. Uh, but it seems to revolve around spending levels, uh, and that those that they, they've they've agreed that they're they're not they're going to go below the levels that were set in the debt deal uh, the debt yeah. deal for for spending right. bills, which infuriated the Democrats uh, it, and and actually made some Republicans uncomfortable too, because uh, you start to you know when you when you even taking into account the most optimistic uh, um, you know reigning in of waste fraud and abuse that old bugaboo um, it, it's it, at a certain point you have to start cutting the military <laughs> and you know seniors benefits and healthcare and and so forth uh, you can only uh, you know extract so many savings from from things that don't cost as much money as those and and they're they're in sort of a pickle right now but mccarthy i think sees that this he's got to do this uh, or you know at any given moment just a few people could grind the house to a halt well what is his speakership in jeopardy 
I don't think so at this point, at least, because there's no real alternative. Um, I mean, I, I think that even the most, uh, you know, kind of hard right folks in the in the Freedom Caucus realize that that some, you know, they may not want to be speaker themselves <laughs> uh, with, with this sort of, you know, raucous majority and thin majority. And so having McCarthy, uh, you know, sort of at, at a, you know, they can just sort, sort of hit a buzzer, you know, like Trump with his Diet Cokes mm-hmm. in the White House. They can just hit a buzzer and say, like, Kevin, <laughs> we need to talk here. Uh, and which may be better than, you know, them having to run things. I mean, it, it doesn't seem like there's a, <laughs> an alternative that they have. So I think that he's he's fine. Now, how effective the speakership will be is another question, but he doesn't seem to be in immediate jeopardy of uh, losing his his, uh, position. Okay. Another wild week in Washington. Uh, And uh, we thank our panelists for bringing it all in perspective for us. Thank you to Sarah Wire from the LA Times, Eliza Collins from the Wall Street Journal, Jason Dick, CQ Roll Call. Now, before you go, uh, the one story that caught your attention this week, whatever you were working on, and we're all working on so many things at the same time, uh, whether it was something in your uh, area of uh, in- interest or expertise or not, what caught your attention, stopped you in your tracks, made you laugh or cry? Um, your favorite story of the week. Eliza, start us off, please. So I read a Washington Post article about a woman who was struck by lightning outside of the White House. Yeah. And I don't I didn't even know this happened. But I mean, it's it's a deep read basically about what happened to her and her recovery and just how completely the lightning messed her up. Um, Three other people she was with died, actually. It's an upsetting read, but it was just, I thought, a really smart, interesting, different look. And um, it also, you know, was a new fear that I (laughs) instilled in me. Right. Remember, that was in Lafayette. They were in Lafayette Park, and a huge rainstorm, lightning storm, they huddled together under a tree, which everybody says you should never do in a lightning storm. Uh, and the lightning struck, you're right, three were killed. And um, the injuries that she suffered, amazing that she survived that. Yeah. Incredible story. Watch out. Uh, how about you, Jason? So uh, anyone who's listened to the podcast knows that I love movies. Movies, uh, right. Yes. Uh, and... The, I think, you know, the story, I, I have to admit, too, there's a disclaimer because I'm a part, uh, a small part of, very small part of the story. But uh, last year, AFI Docs, the documentary film festival, uh, long time running in, in D.C., announced that it was going on hiatus and, and wouldn't be doing festivals for a while. This was a big gap, you know, I think, in, in the city's culture uh, because people love documentaries in, in this town. Um, and, and so a couple of folks got together to to start a, like a small, a small version of a documentary film festival last year. It was a one day affair and that blossomed into DC docs, which is this year. Oh, yeah, and yeah. again, disclaimer, I'm, I'm going to moderate a couple of panels uh, after films this year, but in, in today's, you know, uh, print Washington post and it's, it's appeared online uh, before Anne Hornaday has a sort of a breakdown of like, of what happened and, and why Jamie Shore and Sky Sidney, who are the co-founders of the festival, got together and and basically you know created something out of whole cloth uh for 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 the community it's it's underway right now last night was the opening night 
Um, uh, they were screening a, a movie about Joan Baez, Joan Baez, I Am a Noise, a, a, a pretty terrific film. And it was Anne, Anne's like story about like what, what the challenges to documentary film and how it relates to streaming and theatrical releases and, and just the, the economy itself is pretty fascinating. Yeah. But it has a happy ending, too, which is that yeah. we saw this movie. Joan Baez was there. And then last uh, later on, uh. we went dancing with her over at dirty habit uh, in hotel monica it was it was a really it's a good it's a it's a good non-fiction story (laughs) and hornaday she's a great reporter too great reporter uh sarah wire um sarah what uh, what caught your attention Uh, mine's less upbeat uh but npr had a wonderful piece this week about a team of uh legal professors and experts who are working to get judges to stop uh, using uh, cases related to slavery as uh, case law in the United States. Mm. And they estimate that uh, 18% of all case law in the United States is within one or two steps of a case directly about slavery in some way. Wow. Um, oh. And it, I had no idea. I, mean, I covered this no. stuff for a living and I had no idea. Uh, and just try to get, maybe not even to stop using these cases as law, but to be honest about why, you know, that slavery was a major part of it. And it starts off with an anecdote about a, uh, a man in Maryland who wanted to update his will to free uh, people he owned and his relatives channeled his, uh, or challenged his will. Mm. And mm-hmm. to this day, that case Townsend versus Townsend is still cited, and when it comes to challenging wow. wills, Whoa. yeah, I had no idea either. I'll have to check that out uh, on NBR. Uh, uh, thank you, Sarah, so much. Well, my favorite story of the week. I, I I'm sorry, but it just goes back to the uh, Trump indictment again, and the Trump arraignment, and the fact we didn't talk about. That his first stop after the courthouse was to the Versailles restaurant, <laughs> um, the old hangout in uh, Miami, which I, I must I, I must admit, I went there once when I was a, a co-host of Crossfire. I went in disguise, wearing a cap and sunglasses. I didn't want to be recognized. I just wanted to see uh, this bed of right wing extremism in Florida. So Donald Trump went and he arrived and he opened the door and he shouted, food for everyone. <laughs> made the great big problem food for everyone he stayed 10 minutes he shook some hands they prayed over him he left and nobody got any food there was, <laughs> <laughs> there was no there was no food served there were no drinks served and to me it was just uh, just a funny one more example of uh i'm going to eliminate obamacare on day one uh or I'm going to build a wall and Mexico's going to pay for it. And now we have food for everybody. And once again, Donald Trump's big promise amounted to to nothing. But you know what? Still, people still believe him. So uh, he'll still keep it up and people will still continue to believe him. And with that, a great big thank you. Eliza Collins, good to have you back, Eliza. Thank you so much from the Wall Street Journal. Sarah Weyer, always good to have you with us, uh, Sarah. Los Angeles Times and Jason Dick. Uh, one of our regulars from CQ Roll Call. Great job, panelists. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you good friends for joining us 
for this uh, wrap-up of the, the news of the week in Washington. We'll be back on Tuesday uh, with an interview with Charlie Sykes, the founder of the Bull and editor of The Bulwark, about everything going on in American politics today and his role maybe in trying to undercut the No Labels movement. Uh, Charlie, former conservative radio talk show host and now very much a leader of the anybody but Trump in the Republican Party movement. Uh, so that's on Tuesday. Have a great weekend, everybody. Happy Father's Day. Come back and see us on Tuesday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.